At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 359th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, we want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is, I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. In nature, we don't find closed loop systems. We find circular systems where energy and resources are part of a loop, repeating itself endlessly and sustaining those systems. Growing food should be a circular system too, and aquaponics is a perfect example. Aquaponics uses natural cycles where fish feed plants and plants feed fish. Let us teach you how to start your own fish-powered garden in a few easy steps. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you will receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is composting with nature's own army. We're talking with Kieran Olivares Whitaker about black soldier fly farming. Kieran is the founder and CEO of EntoCycle. He has a master's in environmental design and conservation. And while working as a scuba diving instructor, he was fortunate enough to travel and visit some of the most beautiful places on earth. He saw firsthand the environmental damage that human development and current lifestyles are causing to these paradises. Convinced that we are killing our own planet and that animal farming is the single most destructive activity humans have ever invented, he started EntoCycle as an insect farming company using black soldier flies to provide an alternative. Welcome to the show today, Kieran. Are you ready to rock black soldier flies? I am indeed. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yep, for sure. So I'm a proper inner city London boy, mm-hmm. born and bred, probably one mile from the very heart of London. So it'd be quite surprising doing what I'm doing. Oh, yeah. My parents have always kind of brought me up with composting in the garden, doing allotments in the garden with food, you know, never wasting, never throwing away stuff, always recycling, always reusing as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And that, I suppose, is just so the seed took me forward. I 
wasn't particularly strong educational wise. When I did apply for college, university, I applied from the rainforest in South America for six different courses. Wow. They were in a very broad spectrum, but I got selected for multiple of the colleges I applied for and ended up doing essentially kind of geography-based conservation work related. So environmental design, environmental conservation, planning, and all of that slowly drove me to the fact that our human life cycle is incredibly damaging. I mean, that's just from an academic point of view. Right. After I finished my master's, I decided to go traveling just that one more time, which turned into six years of living abroad. I lived in Southeast Asia, Central America, South America. And as you said, everywhere that I've lived, our human lifestyle is just devastating our planet. It is. Our rainforests are being teared down. And if you think it's bad on land, go underwater. Our coral reefs are dying at an alarming rate. There are no more plenty of fish in the sea, unlike the famous saying. We are just draining it. And so... I kind of slowly just had a build-up of enough is enough is enough. And I actually thought of starting this project while I was at university at college. And I just kind of got in the way of traveling for a while. But one day the straw broke the camel's back eventually when I saw a tilapia, which of course is a very nice fish to be farmed because it's quite sustainable. Yes. However, it was released into the very delicate ecosystem in the Mexican cave systems as I was a cave diving instructor. And what it means is that all the local flora and fauna are going to be either eaten or outcompeted very shortly. It was just my final, that's it, I've had enough. So in the middle of the kind of the, the British winter, I foolishly, in the space of four or five days, decided to up sticks and move back to the UK to begin EnterCycle. Wow, that's a cool pathway to take. It sounds like you had some enlightening times. Indeed, definitely an eye-opener. And seeing it firsthand really drives home. It's all well and good seeing TV programs or stuff on Netflix about what's happening, but actually when you see it yourself yep it kind of gives you that extra reason to get out of bed and do something about it right when you said something interesting you noticed that how the oceans were being overfished Indeed. So you go to areas that are fairly close to fishing zones or fishing, you know, where fishing quotas are allowed and there just isn't anything. Yeah. The famous quote in Europe is the med is dead. There is nothing left. If you go into some places in, you know, the Indonesian triangle, uh-huh. just fish galore is everywhere you look. You couldn't throw a stone without hitting a fish. But where we, especially in the developed world, we've already overfished our populations and now we're spreading to outfish areas around the world that are not particularly what we consider our waters, but we're still going there. Yeah. We have an interesting shared history then. Imagine in 1974, I'm in the eighth grade. I had to write a paper for my biology class. And what I wrote about was how our oceans were being overfished. Fantastic. So even back then it was clear and present. Yeah, and it was clear for me back then. And that's really the, I'm going to call it the torpedo that sent me down this path of educating people around this stuff is knowing that there is something deeply wrong with the way we're living and eating on the planet. And it sounds like you're there too. So yay. I would say yay for us doing it, but unfortunately that we have to do it. Yeah, exactly. So what led you there? Like, what was your big aha moment about realizing that in your uh, bio, you said that animal farming is the single most destructive activity humans have ever invented? I suppose that I've always been fairly conscious about what food is. Uh where it comes from. Until recently, I'd say the average Joe just didn't know 
or still probably doesn't know or willingly ignores the food web that comes from the beginning of how food is created until it comes on our plate. Mm -hmm. And that's especially true for animal farming. So if you think chicken or pork, for example, that has every living organism needs to consume protein. And for those farmed animals that consume protein, they need to be given because the farmers are trying to do it as quick as possible. They have to be given a very high quality protein. Right. And those high quality proteins are generally either soy protein that comes from South America, if you're looking at the global trend, so Argentina and Brazil, or fish meal from the coast of Peru and Chile. And the only way that we're going to feed a growing population, and a population that actually is globally eating more meat per capita, is to cut down the rainforest faster and empty the oceans quicker. Mm -hmm. I think what a lot of people don't actually realize is that the really high quality protein that's used to feed kind of the aquaculture, so salmon or prawns or baby chickens and baby fish, because they need a very high quality diet. Right. It's actually little fish that are caught in mass quantities off the coast of South America. And unfortunately, those fish are actually dwindling. So year on year, it's slowly going down. But yet we have a growing population. Farming is increasing year on year. So at some point in the very near future, supply will be massively outstripped by demand. Yeah. There's only one thing's going to happen. Massive price increases. And then there's going to be an even bigger trade-off for who gets what when it comes to like nutritional value of people's diet. Unless we figure out this whole black soldier fly thing. Exactly. I'm not going to be one to say that this is the silver bullet by any means, but it is one of the, the alternatives out there, along with in bio meat or less consumption of fast food meat or, as black soldier fly, using natural diets to feed animals. Yeah that actually bioconvert waste. So how does the whole black soldier fly system work? So we have two different systems. One, we are essentially farming the BSF, the black soldier flies ourselves. We then use less than 1% of that population to repopulate the cage systems. So we are doing everything fully indoors. We have no dependence on daylight or climate temperature control outside. So we're doing everything artificially controlled. We do not try to copy or replicate a sunny climate. All we try to do is manipulate the life cycle of the black soldier larvae to stimulate them at the right time to mate. Wow. Then of the 99% that we do not use to repopulate the cage systems, we use to consume food waste. So currently we're using industrial brewery waste, both solid and liquid form, vegetable and fruit matter, and coffee waste. Basically, you're collecting food waste from restaurants. So we're using pre-consumer waste. So waste that doesn't come from restaurants, it comes from breweries, it comes from kind of big coffee houses and from fruit and vegetables in the local area here in London. So where we're based, we're right at the tip of what's called the Bermondsey Beer Mile, uh -huh. which is a very trendy hipster mile of probably seven or eight breweries now. Wow. Of very various sizes from kind of, you know, your independent, your very small one, two brews per week to some guys who are growing at a rate of knots. And this, this is happening in most cities around the world. We have all of this waste on our doorstep and a lot of it is just going into the trash and into the landfill. Right. So what do the black soldier flies do with it? What's that process like? So we put a fixed mixture of the waste streams into feeding boxes. We then put the right percentage of baby larvae into the same box and we simply leave them in a semi-controlled environment for a week. They digest the food waste. So the way that they digest it is by they excrete enzymes and then consume the broken down matter 
mm. which is why they're very good at outcompeting bacteria, fungi for the same resources. You know, they've been doing this for billions of years. Right. It's just their natural way of outcompeting. They are a faster method. They then consume that and excrete essentially what's called a frass, which is a near complete fertilizer. It still needs some remedying, but it's a very, very innate substrate that's about 60% reduced in volume uh-huh. and the larvae grow from just a couple of millimeters so apologies for not having the old imperial in my head at the moment up to about an inch in the space of that week wow they grow that fast yep so we try to catch them after the fourth instar shedding so they have five instars during the larvae phase and a bit like a snake sheds its skin uh-huh. the larvae will also shed their outer shell and they will between each instar pop quite large overnight essentially so we catch them before they start transforming into adults as they become pre-pupa uh-huh. because we're trying to do this just like the rest of the farming industry we're trying to do this as fast as possible in as minimal space as possible to produce as efficient a protein and for us making it efficient actually just means more sustainable right the process starts with little larvae they turn into a grub and then they turn into a soldier fly that flies essentially correct so you have those three phases and what we're trying to do is we're trying to catch them in the larval stage or right before the larval stage no so the larval stage we are controlling the volume and the population population once the larvae have eaten all the food waste there's essentially a dry substrate so it's very easy to separate using a sieve to isolate out the larvae from the soil essentially that drops through because the larvae are larger we can then extract them dry and process them into protein flour so that's where we're going next is all right what do you do with all this protein and what i've been doing with them so i experiment with them a lot here at the urban farm i've tried four different systems of raising black soldier flies and for me they're a black soldier fly grub that that the chickens love. That's all the farther I take them. What are you doing with them? So right now, we're not particularly interested in scale or producing particularly large quantities. What we're interested in is two things. Firstly, is a modulated technology that is fully scalable. So what that means is we've developed, for example, 12 feeding units, but those 12 feeding units work in a certain systematic way where they could be 12,000, 1,200,000. It doesn't matter because all you need to put is more and more units next to each other and we are slowly throughout the process automating each stage so right now we have what we believe is the world's first fully automated breeding facility so we don't have any human interaction so the flies and the eggs are delivered and collected from the cage units and because we have six of these already we know that this technology is scalable to 60 600 6000 what we're now doing is looking at the slightly larger side which is the feeding technology Uh again the whole process is modular so to scale, what we care about is how efficient this single module is and how cheap essentially it is to build because we know that to, to scale inside, we just need more and more of these modules running next to each other so that we can end up having hundreds if, or thousands or hundreds of thousands of these modules producing huge scale protein. Again, it goes for us, it goes all back to being able to do this fully indoors because we could be located next to food waste. We don't want to be transporting food waste because it's high in water content. Yep. That means expensive. Yeah. So our technology is specifically designed to be next to large waste producers, not dependent on sunlight, not dependent on being in kind of favorable climatic conditions. So it can be in exactly like we have today, a very wet and windy UK, or it could be in the middle of the night in Phoenix. Nice. So what does a system like this look like? I mean, is it in a space of 10 square feet? 
Yep, so right now we are about half a mile from what you guys would think of as the famous Tower Bridge of London. Yep. We have reclaimed an old school that we have taken the industrial kitchen area and converted into our offices, taken out a lot of the kind of the old infrastructure and put in kind of food grade insulation panels, temperature system. And if you really think about it, it's a whole bunch of boxes that are moving by themselves on automation rails and a whole host of sensors collecting data and analyzing and controlling that system. Wow. I'm hoping there's videos on this out there that we can post on the show notes page with the podcast. Yep. So the Mashable video that came in saw us has a kind of a little cheeky sneak peek of some of the stuff that we're doing. There's two outputs from this system. There's a fertilizer and there's this black soldier fly grub. What are you planning on doing with that? So we are working with two, probably the four largest global feed companies at a fairly small scale currently, but we are running trials with kind of all of the outputs. So looking at the frass, does it have contain, you know, any particular properties such as antifungal or antipesticide, or is it just simply a good fertilizer adder? The same goes with the larvae themselves. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at how we can apply the different components, you could call it, of the larvae. So you have the protein, the lipids, the fat, and the chitin, the outer shell. And they can be used realistically in different types of animal feed in different ways at different percentages. So we know right now we're never going to 100% replace the protein protein that's currently fed to a salmon, for example, or a prawn with black soldier fly protein. It's just not how global industry works. What we hope to do is to slowly, as we become cheaper and cheaper with scale, replace more and more of that protein source. Got it. So you're actually talking about processing this black shoulder flies rather than just feeding them straight on through to the fish or the chickens. Yes, because again, my whole rationale, the whole reason why I get out of bed every morning is because that industrial food web system is what is causing all the problems in the first place. Right. There are two challenges. One, how can we just change that and become very local? But realistically, that's not going to happen for the majority of people in the world. You know, they're going to depend on this globalized food web. So it's how can we tackle that globalized food web and kind of hit it right face on which is actually substituting out the most environmentally damaging which realistically is soy protein and fish meal with alternatives with sustainable insect protein wow this could be a game changer again not calling it the solution but it could definitely change this whole protein game could it not definitely believe so again the small pessimist in me knows that for quite some time maybe a couple more years we were going to be massively more expensive than the alternative protein sources and realistically most of the market won't accept that until it becomes cheaper at a certain point. However, we are trying to plug ourselves into the entire food system. So by working with the large grocery stores or the supermarket chains, we can take their waste streams and then we can plug it back into the beginning of the food systems. Yeah. Then it ends up being back on the shelves again for them and sold to customers. Nice. You guys have a process graphic that we'll have on the show notes page. Tell us a little bit about that. We are looking at that graphic has two particular sides. First is the breeding, as I kind of mentioned. This is the part that we focused on because as you said earlier in the show, it's difficult. <laughs> there are many people who have tried to attract or breed black soldier flies. And even though they're globalized, you find that every continent, they are relatively difficult to breed. They are a subtropical species. They like hot, warm climates. They're not very strong flyers. They have multiple weak points as an adult. For example, they don't even have a proper digestive tract. But that's why, if you can get over that hurdle, the larval phase is so important. Because not having a mouthpiece as an adult means you have to consume all of your energy before metamorphosis as a larvae. 
Right. So they are the fastest. They will outcompete crickets, outcompete mealworms, outcompete housefly larvae. They just are nature's apex bioconverter. So we can manipulate that in that graphic to consume the food waste. Uh-huh. What we're looking at is what business language, the capex, which is the most expensive part, we want to be able to do as quickly as possible. Yeah. So we're looking at feeding them in the shortest term timeline possible, which means that we can make this cheapest possible to challenge fish and soy protein. Yeah. And then at the end of that, we will then dry and isolate the proteins and the lipids and sell them onto the market. They consume an amazing amount of food waste, do they not? Almost scarily a large amount. Yeah, and just in my buckets and experiments here at the urban farm, it's amazing to watch, number one, how much they do consume, and number two, how quickly they grow. So I think what we're currently approximately able to do in one of the crates so we kind of as a baseline because it's an existing off-the-shelf solution we're using euro crates we know that within one standard euro crate which is you know the standard delivery box that the grocery delivery man comes to your house with we can put 25 to 30 kilos of food waste into and they will consume that in six to eight days Wow, how cool is that? So how is this useful to our listeners and us out here in the world? How is all this useful? There's a two-edged sword almost. Myself, the whole reason I'm doing this is because I just really do give a hoot about this planet. My entire mission is to try and radically change the way we do this as quick as we do this, the feeding, the way that we feed. From a business point of view, the only way that I think sustainability will ever work is by being a financial win. Yes. Businesses have to make money first and then they care about sustainability second. Well, if we can make a sustainable business that makes money, then that's the way sustainability will win. Yeah. Again, for me, the whole purpose of this is to make a very big, successful business that can outcompete unsustainable alternatives. Yeah. However, that doesn't mean there's not a lot of learnings that can be passed <laughs> on or is not information that can't be shared or gathered by others. Yeah. Because I believe this is only one small piece of a much more complex circle that in 50 50, 60 years time, we will look back at this time and laugh at how inefficient we are, uh-huh. how siloed different kind of farming technologies or food production technologies are. You know, they have to be incorporated. So, you know, slowly you're starting to get people growing food that comes in a greenhouse that's based next to a brewery because they can use the free heat and the free waste that comes from that. This will just start to become just more commonplace. And I believe also a lot of food will start to become closer, right on pun with the name of your podcast. Food will be coming into the urban area. Yep just has to be because from a logistics point of view. Well, and I happen to believe that growing food in urban areas is one of the capital T major solutions for our global food issues. Growing it right here where we have it. I fully concur. Yeah. Wow. Well, I am interested in one of these units when they become available. I would love to experiment with them here in Phoenix. So keep me posted on that. Shall do. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. I'm very academic. Uh I don't believe the academic system is particularly catered for the majority of people who go through it. So I would say maybe the way that they test and teach is probably only good for maybe one in three people. That means maybe two in three people just aren't really doing that well or won't do very well through it. So I didn't, but I almost failed my schooling, education and my undergraduate and even nearly my master's just because it's not curtailed to me. What I learned from that is actually the education system doesn't necessarily mean that you can't do well. For me, it's a bigger lesson, uh-huh. but it just means just because something doesn't look like it works for you doesn't mean it doesn't work for you in the end. Yeah, Perseverance is probably the key learning out of that. Yeah. 
again, we have a shared history. My first round in university happened in 1981, and my semester at Arizona State University, I got a 0.5 grade average. That was two Ds and an F, by the way. That's how that nice. happened. Yeah, yeah. And then fast forward 19 years, I went back to school because I was interested then to learn. And, you know, that time around, I was all over it. You know, I got great grades and I learned a lot, but it was on my timing rather than their timing. Yeah, I think that's also another very good learning for people. I think on similar story, to go on to do your university in the UK, you have to get a minimum of a C in English. Oh. And let's say I scraped the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> it was more probably a friendly nudge over the line than it was ability to do so yeah well there you go but it got you in it got me in indeed I and mean, we also have another joke over here in england that if you're not that good at university you get yourself a desmond and that's a desmond tutu oh <laughs> a tutu is the second worst grade or the third best if you want to look at it in a positive light oh there you go but you keep going so what do you consider your biggest success honestly i'd probably say right now is EnterCycle. i've grown from a one person operation who just had a keen interest when living in mexico and that took me to building a whole bunch of electronic prototypes in the uk back to moving to brazil for nearly eight months having not spoken any portuguese back to the uk and we were winners of an accelerator program here in london who you guys might know as the mass challenge based in boston oh yeah i then spent the summer in y combinator in california which is you know the likes of airbnb and dropbox have famously come through uh-huh and now built the team up to 15 to 17 people and secured funding and now building out the prototypes to industrial levels probably say this is my i wouldn't say rags to riches but that's not true but from ignorance to a slightly less ignorance <laughs> an ignorant bliss maybe yes i think also that is maybe going to be the answer to one of your next questions your latter questions <laughs> so is entocycle producing income yet or are you using investor funds to grow the business we're not making income yet because even though insect protein has been legalized to be used in the eu and actually i believe just a couple of weeks ago in north america uh-huh. there's a whole host of kind of sub hurdles that need to be jumped over mm-hmm. things that people would never know so we're kind of plugging along those while also there's a lot of probably the politest way to say it, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in the industry globally mm-hmm. from talking with the very large feed companies people you know fairly small calls of volumes of protein production have been asked for and nobody's submitting it it's either people aren't able to do it or that the product's just not at price hence we focusing on the technology that means it will be available at price Right. And so really that's your goal here in the next couple, three years is to get the technology to the place where you can provide a cost effective protein substitution. Exactly. And one of my kind of almost gimmicky kind of comments that I use all the time, but I actually believe it. The engineers of today are the farmers of tomorrow. We can't keep doing the same things that we do. You know, we need to look back in the past to combine it with 21st century technology to actually able to feed ourselves properly and sustainably and healthily. Right. Amen to that. So what drives you? I think it's, I honestly do just care. A lot of what I do, I cycle everywhere. I mean, I agreed, London's slightly smaller in terms of scale to get around, but I wouldn't dream of going to any other transport system. Everything I wear is secondhand, minus, of course, the underwear, <laughs> their Christmas presents. I've given up eating meat and dairy several years ago. It's just part of who I am. I don't wish to cause issues to this planet, so I do everything that I can not to. That's really what drives me. I think I don't want the fact that tigers will be going extinct or orangutans disappear to be a norm i don't think it's morally or socially acceptable yeah therefore i'm trying to do as much as i can to battle it nice well thank you for doing that that's a big reason 
that I do what I do. It's like there's a challenge here and we need to address it. I fully agreed. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? So again, this might be a little out of the box, but one of my specialities is actually not knowing where the box actually is or if there was a (laughs) box. Uh And I think this is actually quite good. It's unfortunately good timing because the author passed fairly recently, but it would be Stephen Hawking. Oh, Stephen Hawkins. I thought you were going to say Daniel Quinn because Daniel Quinn just recently passed away as well. No, apologies. So Stephen Hawking, A Brief History of Time. Oh, yes. It's not exactly the lightest read. It's not something that's going to, you know, keep you on the edge of your seats. Right. For me, it has a personal kind of resonance. And that is, I almost gave up academically and he got me back into loving science and actually kind of realizing how ridiculously amazing science is and kind of getting myself back into science, got me back into engineering and electronics. And that got me back into, you know, being able to really do what I am currently doing. Mm -hmm. And also kind of gives you a slight insight that there is so much out there there's so much opportunity and potential that just kind of don't be worried how big things are just get on and do what you need to do yeah so i was just going to summarize it's not an easy read but it's amazing if you can get your head around it yeah well and what's not to love about science i've been a science geek since the 70s and there's so much here i suppose you must have seen a fair amount of seismic change (laughs) (laughs) oh yes that is the case so if you had one final piece of advice for our listeners, what would it be? Mine, I think, goes back again to starting your own company. I don't think people should ever be afraid to do so. It's horrendously hard. It's horrendously scary, but it's probably the most worthwhile thing you'll ever do. It's an honest roller coaster. It's almost a cliche again. It's a one day you're up, the next day you're down. You've suddenly won, you know, you've received a huge amount of gratification or funding or something. And then the next day something breaks and yesterday didn't matter anymore. You know, it's all hands on deck. Oh, yeah. There's never a dull day. You know, you're not ever going to have a nine to five. You're never going to want to finish at 4.30, but don't think you ever want to finish. Yeah. You know, you should be doing something that you love, that you're passionate about. You know, you've only got one life, so do something about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Kieran. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure talking. Thank you. And how can our listeners get a hold of you? So the best way is to sign up to our email list via our website at www.entercycle.com and we'll be releasing periodic data information over the coming weeks and months, especially hopefully as we're looking towards the US market and maybe in 2019. Nice. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash entocycle. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urban farm.org to find articles podcasts webinars courses and more well that's it for today thanks for joining us on the urban farm podcast hey urban farm podcast listeners we want to know what you think about our podcast you've been listening to me for almost three years now and i want to hear from you i have some very specific questions including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next the important part is i really want your opinion I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. 
If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food you have access to is what you buy at the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a brown thumb. With this free webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWANTTOGARDEN.COM and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWANTTOGARDEN.COM. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.